Welcome to the Right Fight Podcast, a discussion about how to live a loving life. I'm Reg Lloyd, and we're having a conversation with Kenny Vaughn. Kenny, today we cover the final chapter in the book, and this chapter is called A Legacy of Love. You begin the chapter by talking about your grandfather, Ed Vaughn, and said it's a, he's a man that you never had the privilege of getting to know. As I was reading this, I was fascinated with the story. Why don't you tell us about it? Well, before I do that, um, just want to say thank you to Ted and Colin and you and everyone. I mean, I can't believe we're already on the last chapter of The Right Fight. And so if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, the whole purpose of this podcast starting out was just that we would talk through one chapter at a time through The Right Fight, How to Live a Loving Life, to try to shed more light on what we were communicating, you know, um, all the posts on social media, that's what I'm trying to do. The book does it, but I felt like we could, if we talked about it, it would help even more. So if you're reading the book, if you haven't read the book, if you jumped in the middle of this podcast somewhere, I really wish you'd go back and, and just start at the beginning and get the core and, and move all the way through here to understand. I mean, like, I'm so glad we got it done. Thank, and thank you, Reggie, so much. Praise Church, everybody over there for what y'all do in our lives and my life and and um, and then for stepping up to the plate, huge. I mean, you've given a lot of your time to this. Um, and uh, I ain't paying you. <laughs> I mean, so it's like, um, so yeah, thank you. And, now, and then on with the, uh, with the last uh, chapter, Ed Vaughn. Yeah, so I never met my grandfather. Um, he he was killed in 1957, so that was like I guess 11 years before I was born. Um, the only thing I knew I knew he was killed in a fire, um, but growing up, you know he had my dad, my and I had two uncles, three uncles, and then um, anytime my dad was tough, you know, um, but but he was soft, um, but he but he never cried, but he could never talk about every time. I would ask him anything about Grandpa or about his dad. His t- his eyes would just fill with tears immediately, you know. And he would try to talk, but he couldn't talk. So I never got too much out of him about him, except that, you know, I knew that that grandfather was. Um, he he worked for Magnolia Oil Company, which is now known as Exxon Mobil. It went on to be Mobil, and then he manufactured uh, a jet fuel um, f- for the for the refinery, and somehow he had become. The, the go-to guy for this jet fuel, um, the, he, I guess he had most of the knowledge in that portion of the plant that they were working in and that he that he was really good with people. So they would send people to him, like, you know, the people that worked for the company, if they were struggling or, or, or you know, not pulling their weight as a last resort, basically, before they get rid of them, they'd send them to work with my grandfather. And um, and he they, he had a reputation for taking those guys and making them some of the best guys in in the plant. And um, my grandmother told me about you know a few stories about him, you know. Um, but like just everything I heard about him, like he was a hero to them. So he slowly kind of became a hero to me. Um, and then I wanted to know more about what happened to him. You know, how did he exactly how did he die? So he had so it's nineteen fifty seven. He'd been with the plant for several years, but he had also started uh, uh, working on cars. This is in the 50s. There's not a lot of mechanic shops, so he built him a shop behind his house, and he started repairing automobiles. And then I, these are some of the details I know that, you know, when he would 
take a part from out underneath the car, not only would he repair it, he'd clean it up and repaint it and put it back. So, like, if you opened the hood, you immediately knew where he was, you know. And that's kind of what they had said about him in, in the refineries. Like, you know, wherever he was, everything was better, and uh, including some of these people, you know, that they would send to work with him. And, um, and so he, his mechanic shop had grown enough locally. He was self-taught. He bought publications and magazines and taught himself to work how to work on the vehicles. It had grown enough that it could, he could better support his family with the mechanic shop than he could at Exxon Mold, Mobile or Magnolia Oil at that time. And so he put in his resignation and you know, told him that he'd be leaving in, in 30 days. And they asked if he would stay, stick around for six more months to train someone because no one knew how to do what he was doing. So he agreed to do that. And he stayed the, through the through those six months. And at the end, like, you know, right at the end of the six months was um, Easter Sunday. So it was, it was, he was, well, I guess he was working a night shift because this happens in the middle of the night. So it was after midnight on an Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday morning and something went wrong in that facility. And, um, and so I've just heard clips of, you know, from different people. But um, but he was there with a guy named, if I remember correctly, his initials were BJ. They called him BJ. That was a guy, one of the guys he was working with and helping. And, and I don't know what went wrong, but there was apparently there was a loud hissing noise. And then Grandpa knew that that was like, you know, not good. <clears throat> so he screamed at BJ to run. They ran, and then the, the, the place blew up. And I've seen pictures of the explosion. I mean, it literally looks like a, a nuclear, you know, the mushroom clouds come and all, you know, when you see a nuclear bomb, it was like, I'm, you know, probably wasn't like a nuclear bomb, but it was a mushroom cloud, you know, higher, you know, must have been eight or 10 stories high, blue windows out of homes all over Beaumont. And, um, and so, you know, the, it was in this fire and the paramedics, everyone comes, they show up and, you know, obviously no one's coming out. They're not co going to come out. They couldn't go into the fire. It was too hot. And then, um, like, after they expected nothing, grandfather came walking out of the fire. And um, they couldn't go to him. It was so hot. So he still, after coming out of the fire, had to wake his, make his way mostly to them. And it's probably too gory or gruesome to explain, you know, exactly what he looked like. But just as examples, uh, you know, um, my uncle's got a lump of coins that um, melted together in his pocket. And I'm like, you know, like, man, you melted coins. How, how do you survive that? Um, you know, all of, for the most part, most of his clothes were burned off. Um, they said the skin was just pretty much just sliding off of his body. And so they get him, they take him to the hospital. They get him in the hospital. My father was on his way to California. He had moved to California, and he had come in for Easter, and he was already headed back. And they, somehow they got a hold of him in Houston or something. So he turns around, he comes back. So dad gets back around, I think, you know, a few hours after this happens. And he's in what's, they called it the old Beaumont Hotel. I'm guessing that had to be a hospital, you know. But maybe that was a hospital at the time. And dad comes into the hospital and he's looking for his dad. He's, you know, rushing up and down the halls trying to find him. And he looks into a room, moves on, and, you know, and stuff, and then, he gets a nurse, and he's like, where's my dad? Where's my dad? When he looked into this room, the man in there was in agony and was wailing, you know, and and dad saw him, but he's, he moved on, and then the nurse said he's back in this room, and they went to go back to the room, and um, 
my dad said, told the nurse, that's not my dad. Like, he couldn't even recognize him, yeah. I mean, his ears were gone, most of his facial features, you know, it was, it was pretty bad. So they said, so he comes in back, and they go, yeah, we're sorry, but that is your dad. And Dad said he's wailing in there. He can't bear to go in. He opens the door. Grandpa sees Dad, and he stops crying. And so Dad just tells me, when you hear Dad tell me, he's just like, Kenny, he just totally dried it up. He would not let me see he was hurting. And, and he said, you know, he said, he said the things, some of the few things that I remember was um, that he was, he kept asking for if somebody would just put some ice on his tongue. And he said that they wouldn't put any ice on his tongue because they thought it would make it worse. Um, and Dad's like, you know, I wish I'd put the dang ice on his tongue. But the family gathers around. They get together. The whole family gets there. And then he just, they, they're talking to him, and they're asking him, how did he get out of the fire? Like, how, how did you get out of there? You know, what, what was going on? And he kept asking about his friend, TB or whatever, TJ, whatever that guy's name was. And, um, and this is what Grandpa said. He said, uh, he said, I knew I wasn't going to live. You know, I knew my life was over. Um, but I wanted to tell my family goodbye, and I wanted to get right with God. And then Grandpa lived like, I think he lived seven hours after the fire, not long after that. Um, he, uh, he told the whole family, meet me in heaven, and he was gone. And then I asked my grandmother before I wrote the book, this book, this is the first time I'd ever asked her. She was still alive at the time. She was in her 90s. <clears throat> and I said, Grandma, can you, what can you remember, like, about Grandpa? You know, and she told me countless selfless stories just of him as a person. But then she, at the end, she says, the one thing I'll never forget, she said, I didn't really understand, was when he's laying there dying, you know, it's Easter Sunday morning. It's not daylight yet. It's still dark. And he said the one thing he kept asking me was that I please not to forget to make sure the kids had their Easter baskets. And I'm like, what? You know, like, are you kidding me? You know, where where is this place where you're that selfless? You know what I mean? That that, that you're that that you're in this condition yet your focus is something else, you know, and that's just such a, a radical heart change. And, um, and how do you get there? And how did he find the power to get out of that fire? And I share this story in the book, and I share it here and now, um, not to share a gruesome story and, uh, and, and all this stuff, but um, I share it to say this, that, that fear didn't get him out of the fire. Like, fear motivates us until it doesn't. And then when it doesn't, it's no good at all. It, it, it undoes us. So where fear motivates, it also destroys. But where love motivates, it also builds. And so he knew he was going to die. He didn't come out of there for himself. He already knew his life was over. He didn't, fear didn't get him out, but love got him out. Love got him out of the fire. And, and I'm seeing now that love gets me out of my own fires, whatever it is I'm facing in life. But, but when I get in the fire, all I want to focus on is myself. And so I want to love myself. I want to put myself first. I'm like, I'm in the fire. I'm the one burning here. So I want to become self-absorbed and not even realizing that, that I'm consuming myself and that I won't get myself out of it, that I only, I'm only going to get myself further in. 
but but when I that I think it's most important. The most important time to be selfless is when we're in the fire, when in the, when we're in the middle of the suffering or whatever it is, because that's it's in the selflessness that we can find love, that we can find truth, that we can find the right direction, and then we can then we can start moving in that direction, and it's the selflessness that keep that 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 is the power to live the loving life. It's Christ. And it's him and me, so it's, it's God first that gives me this power to keep moving in this direction, to live this loving life. But, but you know, my, I guess this is another thing that really impacts me is um, I often say like this, fear never lives and love never dies. And what I'm trying to say is that when fear live, rules our life, we're so consumed with giving to get, with manipulating with all these different things, with ourself first, that life goes by and we don't even understand we lost it all. Like, it was all for nothing. Love costs us something, but never as much as living this fear-led life cost us. In the end, it, it leaves us fruitful. And when I think about my grandfather, I literally never met the man. But he's had an enormous impact on my whole life. He's had an impact on my children's lives. My grandchildren may or may not know his story or know his name or anything else, but, but so much of who he was and the love that he had for his family has come through my father to me, to my family, to their family. like that. So love never dies. Fear never lives and love never dies. And, and, and Jesus is our greatest example. So I don't know. I just thought it would be a good way to uh, to wrap the book up, and and I just want people to understand. I guess closing it with this: love isn't weak. You know, I guess that's my biggest message with the with the closing of the book. Is you know, we before I before I got on this journey, to me, if you said the word love, if I heard the word love, my first thought was weakness, and um, because I thought meekness was weakness, and what I've learned is that. Uh, that meekness is actually strength and the most powerful force on the face of the earth anywhere is love. And you have the power to choose it. And it's going to cost you something, but it's the best decision you, you'll, you'll ever make. And um, it's strong. Well, I, I think we're all, we're all taught or we grew up with the idea that love is an emotion, is only an emotion. And I think you've made it clear throughout your writing it's a choice. You have the quote on page 153 of The Right Fight. It says, Love is an undefeatable benevolence, an unconquerable goodwill that always seeks the highest good of others, no matter what they do. Love is a choice, not a chance. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. And it's not easy to do, you know, but it, um, but it empowers you and nothing else will. You know, it's just... Um, yeah, and especially in this culture, this world we live in now, with men and the alpha male stuff and the monsters and and all those things. And monsters are weak; they're not strong. I mean, they're they're just they're, they're obedient to fear. Um, they're me first, and they're wrecking their own lives and they're hurting the people around them. Love is meek, and is it's insanely strong. It's it's it's, it's as unmovable as anything 
is unmovable and uh, until death, right? And then comes life. Yeah. Well, Kenny, not only do we wrap up chapter 17 of the book, we actually wrap up the book. Yeah. And I know it doesn't, uh, the podcast will continue with uh, additional content that will support the right fight. But um, this is it. And until next time, trust God's word no matter what. Keep your eyes on the horizon. Thanks for listening to The Right Fight Podcast. Make sure to check out Kenny's book, The Right Fight, for more on how to live a loving life. It's available on their website, shieldsofstrength.com, Audible, and all digital platforms. If you have any questions for the podcast, you can email support at shieldsofstrength.com and put podcast as the subject. And make sure to follow Kenny on Instagram and TikTok at John Kennedy Vaughn. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.